welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing a friend of mine, Chris Flanders. Uh, Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. And uh, this is actually the first interview that I've done for this podcast. And so uh, you are the guinea pig. And so I'm, I'm depending on you to make me look good. All right. I, I am a, an expert at being a lab rat and guinea pig. So uh, <laughs> I, I can do this. All right. Well, let me introduce you to listeners. Uh, Chris is a professor of missions at Abilene Christian University, ACU where he's been teaching since 2005. His PhD in intercultural studies is from Fuller Theological Seminary. For nine years, he served as the director of the Halbert Institute of Missions at ACU. And prior to that time, he spent a total of 11 years in Thailand working in Bangkok and Chiang Mai. He serves on the leadership team of the Honor Shame Network and actively writes and researches in the areas of face and face theory. A couple of his recent books Include an edited volume devoted to Christ and missiological reflections in honor of Sherwood Lingenfelter, and another edited volume with Warner Mitchka, Honor, Shame, and the Gospel Reframing Our Message and Ministry. So, with that sort of an introduction, uh, I, I'm going on a ledge here and saying that you are interested in issues of, like, I don't know, honor and shame. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of am. <laughs> uh, what made you think that? <laughs> I just the guess, but uh, you know, I, I didn't. You know, I guess the PhD was worth something, right? So how'd you get? How'd you get interested in issues of honor and shame? It it started. I, I suspect it really began when I went over to Thailand for a summer after my sophomore year in college, just to do a summer internship, and and I started to learn Thai. And I had never taken in high school any languages. That's kind of pathetic to say, isn't it? But um, this was my first venture into learning another language, which if any listeners who know another language also know that learning language is learning culture. And so immediately I was thrust into a very different world of hierarchical pronouns and layers of language. If anybody speaks the Thai language, there are all these layers and and it was mystifying to me. It made me start to think about um, respect and honor and, and then this whole idea of losing face and learning these terms. It, it started me thinking about how different that seemed from my own experience. And then I think maybe the very first big moment was when a theology professor of mine, who wasn't a missions professor, but handed me a book uh, by a guy named Norman Krauss. And the book uh, was entitled Jesus Christ, Our Lord, which is really mostly about his experience of of thinking about um, Christology from his experience as a missionary in Japan. But there's a part of it where he really starts to move into issues of atonement and and evangelism. And if you know anything about Krauss, his experience in writing that book kind of came out of the frustration or ineffectiveness uh, he found his evangelistic efforts to to be yielding and his kind of struggle to to reframe the way he was presenting good news and the story of Jesus. And I was really caught, uh, raptured by this Mm. um, story. And then eventually experienced a similar thing myself when I went back to Thailand for a longer period of time. So I would say learning the Thai language uh, and and Thai culture and then the the Krauss book were really the kind of catalytic things that got me started. Mm. So did you ever think that there would be this kind of wave of interest in the States on honor and shame? Because there certainly seems, seems to be in the past decade or so. It really does. Um, I, I suppose that at one level, it's, it's been a bit surprising to me. Why do you think, it, why do you think, hmm. why do you think there's well, been more interest in the topic? Right. Uh, you know, I just made a presentation at the National um, Evangelical Missiological Society conference last year, and uh, it was uh, the history of the honor shame conversation in evangelical missiology. And I would I would say there are a couple of things. One, 
it strikes me that um, if you trace it out historically in, in terms of a timeline, the interest in auto shame issues and particularly in missions, and there's interest outside of the missions community, but within the missions community has been, seems to me energized by a couple of really high quality works. I'd call them catalytic works. One of which uh, is published by uh, you, you, my interviewer. And, um, and so I think a couple of really great resources that, that have gotten out there in the public and people have started to read it, it's, it's, um, it's made people aware. But I think at the same time, those works would have fallen mostly on deaf ears had it not been for, I think, and I could be wrong here, it's a bit of speculation, but I, I sense that in much of the missions community throughout the world today, that there's a, a kind of a saturation of, of, of the notion of contextuality, that, um, that, that there's a correlative between um, this kind of slow, longer term effect of, you know, the, the contextual discussions that came out of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and now is almost, at least in much of the missions community, a kind of a, a standard way of thinking, right? That we know that the good news, we know that our, our frameworks are going to impact the way that we talk about God or, or the good news. And so we understand this notion of contextuality. It's not this scary thing that just uh, ex esoteric scholars are talking about, but, but now it's kind of on the ground. And so I think that is the, the fertilizer of the, of the seedbed of the ownership conversation that's allowed people to go, well, of course, this makes sense, and I approach it from this perspective. Let me read this resource. It's going to help me think about it in this other way. And I think those two things, a, a set of really good resources, mm -hmm. and, um, and then this kind of growing awareness of the, the necessary contextuality of the stuff that we do has, has made that possible. That's have just you, my guess. Have you seen any kind of pattern in your experience between those people who tend to be more open to honor, shame conversation versus those who tend to be a little more reticent or wary of it? <clears throat> I got to be honest, I don't talk to many people who are really wary or reticent of it. I guess they kind of self-select out of conversations with me. Uh, I spend most of my time talking with, you know, emails that I get or um, podcasts that I get to do, things like that are typically with people who are already predisposed to want to talk about this. So I, I guess in one sense, I self-selected or, you know, um, I, I'm mm -hmm. kind of sheltered from those. But I, I have talked to some people like that, and I'm aware of some of those voices. Um, I suspect that there's a, a theological issue there, as well as a, a kind of a, an orientation in, in one's missiology and understanding of culture that would make a person more open, more likely to engage this conversation. So, so yeah. you're saying that Missionaries or missiologists tend to be more open to it, but theologians are the ones who tend to be a little more more reticent about honor shame. No, oh, well, if if it's a, if that's what I communicated, I I communicated poorly. Let me try and rephrase it. I think that uh, in both sides, theologians as well mm -hmm. as missiologists, those who have a uh, a more open notion or a more dynamic notion of culture, mm -hmm. and also a. a a more generous, flexible notion of some of their theological um, mm. perspectives will make them more likely to, to look into this. Okay. I, I'm not a theological relativist at all. So let me get that out on the table. I'm not talking about people who don't have theological commitments, but sometimes, as you know, some of us, and, and probably myself in my own past, been so ardently committed to my own tradition or my own articulated theological positions that entertaining other views or looking at other other voices that were counter to that would mm. would just would just be problematic i wouldn't why would i spend time reading somebody who so patently is you know involved in in false doctrine or false teaching no that yeah. i don't want to i don't want to read that um it seems to me that there is a a hermeneutical epistemological theological humility that's required to engage this initially and mm. and once people engage it in it initially i I find that many people um, find it a very helpful cause. Yeah, I'd agree uh, that you find honor shame 
discussed in among theologians and missiologists, but it is intriguing that they sometimes talk about them in slightly different ways or in different contexts. So what would you say you found to be maybe one of the greatest misunderstandings or misimpressions that people tend to have about honor and shame? Well, I think the big one would be that there is um, this, this kind of honor shame culture that is other than our culture. And by our, I mean, you know, modern Western cultures that honor and shame is the possession of what the Middle East, Northeast and Asia, uh, possibly uh, non-Western cultures, but, but that the honor shame thing isn't something that we modern Westerners, so the North Atlantic, right? Uh, Western mm. and Northern Europe and North America, Canada and America, North America, uh, United States. It's not something that we really do. And so I, I experienced this profoundly when my, I started to work on face and face work theory research for my dissertation. And that was one of the strong um, messages that I got as I began to, to peer into that a little bit more intently and, and intentionally. And that was, oh, you're studying those, uh, uh, those Asian cultures that do that face thing. Mm. And, um, and so I think that that's probably, in my mind, the biggest misunderstanding. Um, there yeah. is, y'all go ahead, please. As I say, yeah, you, it's funny that you mentioned that because the article that I really want to discuss today is rather provocative title in light of like everything that you've said about uh, being interested in the same cultures and you talk about, well, yes, certainly in Middle East and Asia, you know, there are these things that we call honor shame cultures, but in a chapter in the uh, Lingenfeller book, uh, Sherwood Lingenfeller book, uh, chapter 11, you have a title, a chapter title there. There is no such thing as honor or honor cultures, a missiological reflection on social honor. Uh, I love provocative titles and you win the award on that one. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Especially coming from somebody who loves talking about honor and shame and so forth and so on. Uh, so I think you have some explaining to do. And it seems, <laughs> uh, um, first off, let's just give a, a over big, big picture view here. Okay. What's your, what's your thesis in, in this argument? So that when people think, okay, is he contradicting himself? What's he doing? Is he midlife crisis that he's just, and undercutting all his work he's ever done. What's your big thesis here? <clears throat> well, first of all, uh, it, it appears to have worked because, hey, I landed this podcast, right? Because, <laughs> on the, by the, vir the virtue of the title. So that's pretty cool. Um, a lot of what I say in that chapter goes right back to my research when I was at Fuller. And um, there's really kind of two versions of the honor-shame conversation in modern anthropology. Uh, the first kind of chapter of that that grew out of the work of people like Ralph Linton and Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict in the early 20th century, and then kind of flourished in the 60s and 70s with some other scholars. And then there was a reaction by many, uh, some prominent uh, anthropologists, including a guy named Michael Hersfeld, who taught anthropology at Harvard. Actually, he may still be there. And I kind of ripped off uh, something that he says in an important article that he wrote and was very formative for me. And that's where he says, there is no such thing as honor. Hmm. There are only honors, culturally right. specific honors. And the first part of the title is getting at that, that, <clears throat> that there's, there's no universal thing called honor. In a, in a sense that they always take shape linguistically, culturally in very specific places. And they, and they look different at some level, though there are family resemblances, there are, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a dynamic that's probably common to most things that we would call honor. But the, the second part, the honor cultures um, point is a deliberate poke at what I think is sometimes, and it's not ill-willed um, or anything, but the, the unfortunate naming of certain cultures as this is an honor or this is an honor shame culture and, um, and this isn't. And 
my my fundamental thesis in that article, and one of the things that I try and do in my teaching and my uh, my work with different people when I do consulting and and talk to others, is is to help on uh, to relieve people of what I think is the erroneous notion that there are some cultures that are honor shame and they really do honor shame or face. This really started when I was doing research in face and face work there. There are face cultures. And then there are cultures that don't do face. And it doesn't take very long to realize that actually that's not the case. That in fact, as my dissertation and then my book about face tries to argue, we all do face. All of us, all the time. There's no way around it. Uh, to be human is a, at some level to to be a face creature. I would say the same thing about honor and shame. That once I started poking into or really digging into what is honor and what is shame, I quickly realized that not only do all cultures have these uh, dynamics within them, but also that the the conversation about honor didn't start in the 20th century with anthropologists, but it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, uh, and probably even further back than that. And, um, and that the very issues that we were, I was thinking about in 20th century Thailand were the very things that Aristotle and Plato were talking about, but also people like John Locke and uh, Rene Descartes. And these people were all talking about these issues. And it really just opened my eyes to the fact that these are fundamental human issues that are a part of every culture. And the other thing is that as an academic, I like to be as precise as possible. My students get so frustrated when I turn their papers back and say, okay, but what's your definition here? I can't understand your argument if you don't define your terms. And that's the problem I think that comes with things like honor cultures or honor shame cultures is that at some point people just kind of draw an arbitrary line and say, well, you know, this culture has a lot more honor out there. They're a lot more attuned to public opinion than these cultures. And so we'll just kind of arbitrarily say that's an honor culture and this isn't. And right. I and I find that too loose and sloppy to really be useful. So I prefer to just say right. honor well, shame dynamics in all cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's 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 define honor for people because some might hear, well, if there's all these different types of honor and honor shame cultures, honor right. is just a mushy term to mean whatever you want. But right, right, in the right, article, right. in the article, and I'll say, let me just uh give you a little bit more face here. This okay. article this article, uh, this chapter has has inspired so much of the work I'm doing this year in terms of thinking through how this affects you know behavior and social interactions and morality and so forth so it's just absolutely been stimulating in every respect and and one of the things i do like is that you do flesh out the implications of a definition of honor would you share that yeah i would happy to and i would say that, that that really a lack of a precise definition is exactly why it's easy for some people to say oh that's an honor culture and this isn't mm -hmm. um because most of the time when people make that claim, what they're thinking about is a particular type of honor, a more external public opinion sort of honor. They're saying, yeah, public opinion is way more important in that culture or, or uh, attention to shame, you know, uh, not falling, uh, not failing in terms of public opinion. And so we're going to call that an honor shame culture. Well, th there are legitimate differences between the way that this happens in culture. I define honor. I can get real kind of academic here, but. Honor is at its core uh, an evaluation, a, a judgment that we make that's based on some type of what we would call a virtue or a good. Honor is always positive. So honor is a, a positive evaluative judgment based on some kind of, some criteria, some sort of good, some bar standard of what constitutes, you know, this is good, this is excellent, this is virtuous. Mm. So our acknowledgement or judgment that something meets that standard or is is uh, is approved in that way that's honor mm. at its core now this can be expressed in so many diverse ways and and it is and that's why um sometimes some forms slip under the radar we don't realize you know what that's actually honor uh, and we're doing that all the time here in in our western context as well um shame is uh 
not exactly the opposite of honor. It obviously can relate to honor. Shame is a, a negative evaluation. Sometimes it's the self doing it. Sometimes it comes from outside of ourselves, of falling short, of being defective, of not measuring up. And, uh, and it's the painful negative emotion that one experiences or a group can experience um, of being um, below the standard or my favorite yeah. way of framing, phrasing this is falling short. And, yeah. uh, and so that's shame. Uh, yeah, that sounds rather familiar. Uh, if anybody's read Romans, is falling yeah. short. <laughs> I think Paul may have said something about that. <laughs> well, one of the people that you draw from, uh, Stuart, yeah. uh, he, you really, really uh, play off of his discussion of what honor is. Um, can you talk about what, how Stuart defines shame? So, because I think it really <laughs> plays out in terms of, I mean, I mean honor that is. I think it really has implications for like morality and living. So Charles Stewart, who's a British anthropologist, wrote a book simply titled Honor. And it really was one of the most important things that I stumbled upon in my doctoral work. It was very formative for my whole approach. Uh, one of the things that he does in, and he evaluates, he looks at a lot of fairly recent, uh, he, he does some work with the Bedouin um, culture, but then he also looks at, you know, modern European laws of, of different kinds, and he talks about insults, and, and what he comes to the conclusion about is that, that honor at its core is, uh, a, his term, a, about a claim right, that is a, a sort of a, um, an, a right to a certain type of respect, or a certain type of behavior. And that at its core, this sort of uh, hinge or this sort of energy is what activates and, and motivates all expressions of honor and all honor groups and honor codes. And uh, it's this sense that, uh, that one is entitled to, or to use the biblical language, one is worthy of, um, one is owed a certain kind of respect, certain treatment, certain relationality. And so that's how he gets to the core of what he calls honor. Um, and then shame can be, you know, a response to that, a failure of that in certain ways. So, uh, so a little change of pace here. Uh, let's play, pl play that out in daily life. How have you, for example, seen someone honored, this week, whether for a good reason or not, and why does it stick out to you? Let's see how this plays out in daily life. Well, I mean, so many uh, hard to pick. Well, I'll, okay, before this podcast this morning, I'm an early riser, and I got up early, and I went to my favorite spot to get early morning work done, my local Starbucks. And I was there this morning. I, I know the manager fairly well because I go there a lot. And I was working, uh, and all of a sudden, I hear this ruckus, this commotion and over to my left. And I look up, and the manager, Jen, had stood up. She was at a table working and was clapping really loud and giving a shout-out to her morning crew because they had apparently nailed some uh, goals that they had for customer service and, and you know, processing people through the drive-thru or whatever. And she kept going on for like 15 or 20 seconds out loud about giving people a shout out, different names of people. Mm. You are the best. I love this morning crew. You all just nailed it today. Good for you all. And you could see the faces of the crew, the six or seven people who are walking around behind the counter, you know, very cheerful, very appreciative. Okay. So that little, what we would, you know, we see this kind of stuff happen on every day. Um, there's so much honor dynamics that were a part of that. The manager, somebody who's of a higher position mm. uh, organizationally, who controls your life at some level, at least your work life, giving you a recognition. Um, and here, not just um, tacitly, but out loud in front of other people, so much so that it caught the attention of several customers. But mm. um, words of affirmation and um, encouragement, uh, this is a kind of public honoring that yeah. is normal to most of our experience, right? Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of when I talk about 
China and honor shame, what we call traditional honor shame cultures, people right. immediately say, well, that, what, what's the deal with that? that? I mean, that's just here. In, that's just here in America. That's just everywhere. And I go precisely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, and that's right. Um, in fact, I argue both in my dissertation, but also in this uh, chapter, this book that you mentioned, <clears throat> that it's impossible to conceive of a thing that we would call a culture that doesn't have significant honor dynamics. Because to pull that off, you'd actually have to have no notion of virtue mm. or excellence. Because all that honor is, is a recognition of virtue or excellence in some way or some manner. Yeah. And it's pretty hard to run a culture without a notion of, of excellence or virtue. You just, you just can't do it. Uh, so cultures by their very nature, because they, they trade upon um, a notion of virtue or the good or multiple ways of thinking of what is good, produce the dynamics that we call honor. It's mm. just a part of our God-given humanity as we engage in forms of sociality. Yeah, you have a section in your chapter that is worth a whole book, and so we can't get into it, but it talks about the function of honor. And I count yeah. at least six functions. It talks about evaluation, relationality, it provides meaning, uh, honor uh, shapes morality, it's, it, it acts as a type of social power. And mm -hmm. uh, there's another one here, I think about social capital. I mean, yeah. each of these is just so rich and valuable. But I want to just hone in on at least one of these. You know, how does this definition of honor as a right to respect have an impact on morality, one's sense of living in a right way? Yeah, um, that's that's a great question. And uh, and thanks for noticing that. that I, I do think that honor is pretty basic and important and is worthy of our attention because it is such a power. It has so many ramifications or connotations or um, like you mentioned, uh, multiple ways that it, it works in a society. So um, David Gilmore, who's uh, an anthropologist, has this phrase that I love. He calls honor a bundle of virtues. Mm. I, I tend to think of a basket, but a bundle works. And, and whenever you find notions of honor, if you, if you take the time to, to think about it and, and look at it closely, what you find is that embedded in it is certain notions of what is moral or good. And so, um, and this is why I think that honor, what I call honor exegesis of culture is a really valuable thing for missionaries or, or intercultural servants, because if you really wanna understand the, the moral uh, fabric of any culture or any group of people, look at uh, how they do honor, how they, and how they define honor, and, and what counts as honorable or honorific. And what you'll find is that there are these strong notions of what is good or what is virtuous. Um, so it's an index of morality in, in certain important ways. And it helps us to understand what we think is good or moral. Um, and this is true uh, across every culture, right? Look at what people honor and you can understand what they believe to be uh, certainly important, but even more than important, virtuous and morally excellent. Now, um, also, uh, if you read scripture, and as I'm assuming most of your listeners do, uh, you see this pervasive theme throughout scripture of, of giving honor or preference to others who are worthy of that. And Paul, throughout his letters, he gives these little shout outs, which is a form of honor, right? A, a form of public uh, honoring, you know, when he says, hey, I have no one like Timothy who shows, you know, sincere concern for others and not just himself or mm -hmm. Onesimus, you know, and he's this great guy and you really, these public shout outs uh, uh, or um, public um, verbal honorifications are again uh, a way that we to use the fancy um, kind of sociological anthropological term instantiate um, we reify we make real again uh, our basic uh, uh, morality or honor commitment virtue commitment in other words you encourage people to live a certain way by these right. affirmations yeah, you you make the honor code or your 
moral code real again by giving these people shout outs and not those, which draws attention to certain virtues uh, and essentially is a way of, you know, it's when we applaud the same thing. Who do we applaud for? Who do we clap for? And uh, there's an indication of, of a moral basis for that. Some people, their head is spinning because they're thinking, they think this desire for honor or this use of honor is kind of in contrast to morality mm -hmm. that it gets in the way. I heard right. people say honor and shame is just about pride and I right. get rid right. of that sort of thing. Yeah. You make a distinction uh, and these terms can get kind of fuzzy depending on where you read, but of internal and external honor. Whereas if I read you right, internal honor is this, this moral code or the sense of moral rightness internally uh what is honorable morally and then external has to do with one's social reputation mm -hmm. so are you dichotomizing morality and reputation uh or do they interrelate in some important way well i don't think that they're um completely unrelated and i suppose that at one level they're analytically distinct but but i i get what uh, you noted, and maybe some of your listeners are feeling right now, there is certainly, and, and I am by no means a proponent of, of certain forms of, of seeking public acclaim as the primary goal. Paul, it seems to me, and Jesus make very pointed attempts to communicate that that's a bad way to do honor. That's That's not a godly way to approach honor, to be purely concerned with one's public reputation. Um, and, and Jesus has critiques of people who do that. Uh, Paul has critiques. In fact, there's this Greek, this great Greek term, honor glutton, on, seeker of honor. Mm. And, and interestingly, if you, if you delve into the literature, this is the precise major issue between um, Aristotle and his interlocutors, the others, uh, what he calls the, the kind of the Homeric version of honor. So you've got the Aristotelian version of honor versus the Homeric Homer. The Homer version is, is a kind of a warrior, grand. Uh, I'm all about the public face of, of my, uh, my reputation, the acclaim that I can get. And it doesn't really matter how I get that or whether that's in fact based on any true virtue of any kind. If I can get it, that's good, and that's what I'm after. Mm. Um, pure reputation, pure face. Aristotle comes along and says, that's completely wrong. In fact, the way Aristotle defines honor, he says it's the proper reward for virtue. And if you don't have virtue at the core, then you don't deserve any honor. You, and this whole attempt, now the fact that you can manipulate public opinion, that you can disguise yourself and make yourself appear virtuous when in fact you really aren't. Um, these are bad things, Aristotle points out. And, but he all, all the while says, honor is still the most important social good and we should seek it and we should desire it, but we should only desire it if it is based on true virtue or true morality. Mm. So I think that that's one of the big issues because yes, there is a whole set of honor dynamics, honor strategies that's aimed primarily at getting this kind of public reputation and propping it up irrespective of whether I might be a good person or not, or that it might be deserved. And in fact, it is very self-seeking, right? Um, and and uh, I think that that's wrongheaded. And what, what I really found interesting was in my, um, my ethnographic work on my dissertation, which looked at Thai face work rhetoric, term, terms that Thais use to talk about face and strategies, verbal strategies that they use to engage face. One of the things that I learned, which was really fascinating, and I'd been in Thailand for a, a good long time, and my facility with the Thai language is pretty strong. And so I was surprised that I didn't know this, but that's you know what learning is all about, um, is that there is a built-in critique in Thai culture against those who try to gain face on their own, mm. who try and, they have words for it. They try and grab face or they promote 
their face. And Thais look at these kinds of strategies with a lot of disdain. I mean, it happens all the time, and, but they don't like it. In fact, one of the things that I came to conclude, and I put this in my book about face, is that for Thais, face is good if it is given as a gift and if it is an appropriate gift. In other words, the gift is based on some, some form of reality. You're worthy of that. Then that's good. Um, I was thrilled as I was learning this to, uh, and I think at the time I was probably in my devotions or something, just reading through the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 5, 5, I don't know if you uh, know this or, or have thought about this lately, but in Hebrews 5, the author notes that Jesus, this, this being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek and all, he didn't go take that honor on his own. Mm. He was given it by God. Wow. And, it, and I went, Jesus is Thai. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I shared this with some, uh, some of my Thai friends. And they were like, yeah, that's the right way to get honor. You don't seek it on your own. You do the right thing, you do the good thing, and then those who are legitimately empowered to give that recognition do it, and then it's a great thing. And Jesus exemplifies that in Hebrews 5.5, 5. and I went, wow, that, I'd never even seen that before. But my understanding uh, was expanded through my looking at Thai culture. It now helped me understand the book of Hebrews a little better. Wow. Yeah, that, that story about Thai culture in a good way of seeking on uh, honor, getting honor versus seeking on your own. It makes me immediately think about dynamics going on in America. Uh, oh, but, yeah. but before we get to that, wanna, this is the Doing Theology Thinking Mission podcast. So one of the big goals that we have here is to help people more and more think how missions, missiology integrate with biblical studies and theology. And I don't recall if I prepared you for these questions so uh you're spontaneous if not then your spontaneous answer will be gold i'm sure uh this is where i'm gonna earn my keep right here you go all right well let's see how, let's see what you think of these questions here uh two questions how should biblical studies or theology play a bigger role in how we think and do missions why well, uh yeah good question i've always been of the uh, the perspective, uh, and here I I reference you know some of my missiological mentors growing up, uh, people like Galen Van Rienen or uh, at Fuller Sherwood Lingenfelter, but also theologians that I've read like um, and was on actually worked with me in my um, doctoral work, Veli Veli Mati Karkinen, who is a theologian who works at Fuller, that um, that that the core of missiology is not mission. It's not activity, it's God, and, and which is a theological um, thing. So, so understanding God and the good news, which I would say is a theological and a biblical issue, has got to be at the center of our missiology. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would say that those are incredibly important. In fact, I've always pushed against... Um, and, and really kind of even resented at times, the strong distinction that people make between, for example, theology and, and missiology. And I think that the, the, that the really um, helpful writers and thinkers out there right now are those who see that that distinction is, if real, it's very porous. And even to some extent, um, it's not real, that, uh, that true theology, because it it's, it has as its goal to understand this God who is on mission, who, who is a missional God. True theology needs to be missional in that sense. And biblical studies, here is a document and set of documents that were written in the context of mission uh, by missionaries or missional apostles, missional servants, and that uh, that scripture itself has to be understood in a kind of a missional framework. So I, I'm I'm a person who tends to want to collapse those dichotomies and boundaries. Not that not that there aren't disciplinary specific research questions that we should address. I'm not saying that all missiologists are actually theologians and theologians are biblical. You know, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that that there is a if you think of it as a Venn diagram of these three things that there's this core of overlap that that needs to be recognized and that we kind of need to, to proceed from for these to be really healthy 
um, fruitful conversations. Well, that leads to the second question, which uh, is how should missions and cultural understanding play a bigger role about how we think and do theology? <clears throat> One of the ways that I think it should, and I think it is playing a bigger role, is that as the growing edge of the global church here, I think I'm particularly uh, recently connected to the, I want to use the word flourishing, but flourishing is really too mild, exploding volcanic eruption of of, of uh, writing coming out of Africa, African theology, African um, uh, approaches to, to God, to church, to mission. Um, it's just uh, amazing and almost dizzying to try and watch. I can't keep up with it. So I have my people that I know and I'm like, hey, give me the the most important books on, from Africans in the past two years. And they send me this list of 20 and they say, you know, this probably isn't, doesn't do it justice, but here are 20. And I'm like, whoa, I can't read 20. But, um, but my point here is that um, one of the ways that we see, you know, this notion of culture and mission kind of connect with our sense of theology is that right now, Latin South America, Asia, Africa um, are producing incredibly of energetic works um, and uh, in English even. And so uh, the global church is beginning to uh, now produce more um, written works that we've been doing it. The global church has been doing it for a long time, but hasn't been publishing where it's accessible to people like me. I don't, I don't read Chinese and, and I don't read Spanish well. So I'm limited in what I can um, access, but um, it seems to me that this is in fact happening. And one of the things that, of course, local theologies or contextual theologies do is they they challenge all of us to get out of our own cultural myopia and and kind of narrow blinders, and 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 really calls us, at least challenges us to to think differently about God, about the Holy Spirit, about the nature of relationships in the Christian community, about discipleship, all of these issues. And, uh, and so the explosion of the, the global theological, missiological, and biblical studies uh, world is, is going to drive us more and more, I think, to, to acknowledge the importance of culture and the power of culture. Yeah, you're bringing up something that's a big value here at Mission One, where I work and serve, and that is we have a lot to learn from the global church. It's not a West the rest mentality. Um, and one of those aspects is an understanding of how honor and shame work. The rest of the world throughout all of human history have really get how these dynamics work. It seems like contemporary Americans are doing some catch up now. So yeah. uh, return to our conversation about honor and whatnot. I'll ask you this. Do Americans have an honor code? Well, I mean, not not to be snarky, but do are Americans human? Because <laughs> right. if, if we are, we have honor codes. Um, yeah. And so there are some things. I mean, one of the things that this conversation does is it forces us to ask, okay, if we really all do honor and shame and face, like Flanders says, well, then are there differences? And of course, there are. Uh, there are great differences. One of the things that happened in uh, in Europe, uh, probably starting in the 16th century and coming forward, was a tendency to to port to a more kind of neutral, not neutral, that's not the right word, less arbitrary, less socially embedded approach to doing society, uh, legal reforms that um, rejected older modes of how you... Um, how you judge who is right and penalties, et cetera, that uh, resulted in a more legal-based, legal-normed society. Um, and, you know, you think of people like Thomas Jefferson, and you think of people like John Locke, who really pushed for this kind of um, more objective, neutral approach that pushed against the older ways of Europe, where uh, if you were uh, esteemed or had certain status, you are more likely to be judged right. Or, or um, in fact, I was just recently reading something by Thomas Aquinas, the great um, theologian, who said that 
there could never be the case where a subordinate could ever judge the rightness or wrongness of a superior. Because if, if you had that happen, then there would be no basis whatsoever for a society for, for norms and standards to function. Uh, yeah, and yeah. so so this produces differences in the way that we do honor and shame in the West. Um, we've ported a lot of that stuff that used to be a kind of honor normed thing to our legal system, to our court system. Uh, and where our commitment to more of an egalitarian equal society has also reframed some of that honor stuff, but it hasn't replaced it. It's just uh, taken certain parts of that and moved it out of the honor world, um, but we continue to live in an honor and shame world in all sorts of all other sectors of our lives. Well, one thing that you said in the article, the chapter that could make people scratch their heads is that you say, and I'll quote here, a highly individualized Western version of the person or self has taken over the primary role of definition of the honor code. The privately defined personal honor um, uh, honor code becomes primary instead of an honor code derived from a larger social unit. Then you say a societal honor code becomes a more personal sense of honor, which is then radicalized and subsequently becomes the individual's private honor code. In other words, honor did not decline, rather it was reconfigured, changing cultural shape. Okay, so just to distill that, yeah. That, that long quote, it seems to say the West doesn't do social honor codes. It does private individual honor codes, uh, which seems to be, by most people's understanding, it's kind of a contradiction of how honor codes work. Can, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, I can try. <clears throat> I, I think... It seems like you're saying that an honor code can consist of one person or an honor group can consist of one person. Well, in, in obviously, a single person isn't a group, so I suppose that that might have been poorly stated. My point was to try and emphasize how much of the world functions, as, as you know well, <clears throat> with a, a, a more sense of a dyadic self or an independent self, which we sometimes call more collectivistic or group-oriented societies. And... And when you have a self, the, uh, an identity that myself and these other people, whoever you might define as the important others, whether it's your family or, or the, the tribe or the, the, the race, the whole country even, um, that those, those people impinge in some sense on my sense of who I am. I am because we are that kind of classic sense of maybe African uh, selfness. So when that's the case, then Obviously, that radically changes the ways that I respond in, in both honor and shame um, dynamics. Uh, the codes of my family or of my tribe or of my village or of my social unit, whichever it might be, now become incredibly important. And so uh, I interact with those in mind in different ways. The, the point I was trying to make, and I actually... Uh, work off of this from something that Charles Stewart notes in his book on honor. And he quotes Otto von Bismarck, the, uh, the well-known um, German leader from the late 19th uh, century and early 20th century. I think that he led into the 20th century. He may not have led that much, but um, there's this brilliant quote that uh, Stewart includes. And I also, I think I include in this chapter and, and, and von Bismarck, standing in front of an audience, says something like, gentlemen, my honor is not in anyone else's hands but my own. It is not anything that you can give me. My honor is my honor. I carry it inside of me. And it is enough. No one can judge me. No one can decide whether I have honor or not honor. It's me before God, and that's it. And so this, this, this notion that uh, von Bismarck articulates really clearly is, is, a, is a kind of an independent, individualized sense of honor. We might call this, sometimes we do, a sense of pride, a sense of honor, or integrity, integrity-based honor. 
Um, doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. I know what I know about myself and I, I'm worthy of honor or I'm not because I know what I am. And, uh, and that's what the point I was trying to make is that um, now, interestingly, von Bismarck didn't generate that honor code that he claims for himself on his own. He got it from society, actually. Yeah. And, and so the irony is that what he claims to be his and his alone actually was a gift from others, yeah. including yeah. God, who he references. Yeah. He references God. So um, at one level, it, it is theoretically impossible to do this on one's own completely, but it doesn't stop people from trying like a von Bismarck. Um, yeah. And essentially, what, what I, yeah. essentially going to Charles Stewart's, it's, he's just claiming that he has a right to respect, to be respected. And nobody else can judge that. I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the ultimate judge. And what you may think about me or not is immaterial. It doesn't matter. Um, now, probably, I, I would guess, you push on that. You walk around throughout the week and watch Bismarck at work. What you're probably going to see is inconsistencies yeah, where yeah. he actually was very concerned about his reputation yeah and uh and he was concerned about um how people honor or do not honor him but uh but then this is this statement kind of tries to articulate what some westerners and radical individualists um are kind of aspiring toward yeah well let me uh just stir the pot the controversy pot just for a second here um we have a mutual friend jason georges who wrote this book called the 3d gospel mm. and he talks about one of the things that gets talked about in there that there are certain cultures that tend to operate around honor, shame, compared to guilt, innocence, or fear, power. And it would appear if somebody wanted to cause a little controversy, it would seem that if you're saying there's no such thing as honor cultures, it would seem that you would be kind of opposed to his argument saying, hey, there are some cultures that are honor, shame cultures. Uh, are, are you opposed to the 3D gospel? <laughs> so in other words do you, you are you are you asking if maybe jason and i should do a sort of a cage match a, sort of a, a, a fight a fight to the death here oh uh, as soon as i read this article i thought people are going to try to use chris's comments against yeah. things that jason or i have said but i have a feeling that my i would suspect that you go well not so fast yeah uh, as I like to say, it's it's more complicated than that. But, but, <laughs> but I would say this, and I, I've actually talked to Jason about that. I mean, so Jason would say, I think, and if I'm wrong here, Jason, if you're listening, then my total apologies. I would, I think that Jason would say two things. He would say, one, I wrote that book a long time ago, uh, and it's and it's an entry point this conversation. So. Be careful in terms of how you uh, you move from the, these basic orientations that he discusses to you know sort of huge major claims about cultures, societies, et cetera. And that would be the second point. And that is that I think even even Jason would says if if you read his other books, right, his his book that he wrote with Mark Baker on uh, ministering and honor shame cultures, is that okay. Let's get this out in the open. When we say honor, shame cultures, here's what we don't mean. We don't mean that there are some cultures that have honor and shame and there are other cultures that don't. And then they actually say in the book, all cultures are honor, shame cultures and that they do honor and shame. Okay, so I know that Jason believes that and, and agrees with that basic sentiment. Um, so if you want to ask the question, uh, am I opposed? to a hard articulation of there are some cultures that are honor shame cultures. And then there are some cultures that are guilt innocence cultures. And then there are some cultures that are just fear power cultures. Uh, if by that you mean um, that you can characterize an entire culture in one of those three modes, then I would say, yeah, I think that that's too, uh, that's too analytically sloppy. Um, and in fact, if you go all the way back to Eugene Ida, who was the first one to kind of throw these out, he doesn't even really mean that when he mentions them. He just says, we react to moral failures in these ways. Um, he's not creating typologies for entire cultures. We've kind of done that often, Ida. So I would say that um, I suspect that it wouldn't take much work to find fear power stuff happening in your local context in North yeah. America. Yeah. So, so you're saying that there is a place 
as long as you properly qualify everything to say, to broadly speak of certain cultures being quote unquote honor shame cultures. However, mm-hmm. uh, I yeah, think what yeah. you're saying is that there's a place for that, but we just got to be really clear that it's just a conversation uh, tool. I, I'd call it a heuristic. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I would prefer that we don't use the terms honor shame cultures. What would, versus, you, what would you suggest? I would suggest uh, talking about honor shame dynamics in cultures and fear power dynamics in cultures and guilt innocence dynamics in cultures. Uh, and I do this because, you know, you can go to one of these classic classically um, honor shame cultures. Let's think of a place like Japan, right? Which has been written about a lot in these terms. And I have read enough Japanese anthropologists and Japanese social, social psychology to understand that Japanese people have guilt notions and think of guilt and have mm-hmm. terms for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of deflates the notion of Japan being a, an honor shame versus a guilt innocence culture. So now, how would you then, uh, sorry to interrupt, how no. would you then, if somebody were asked, well, how would we contrast, say, America from China right. and Japan, if you can't say, well, they're an honor-shame culture, what would you say? They are a culture with honor-shame dynamics? Well, I mean, <clears throat> all right. places have that. How would you, how would you right. make broad descriptions? I think what it presses us to do is to, to be a bit more accurate or precise with what we mean by honor or mm. shame. So uh, some cultures, by virtue of their kind of socio-historical norms, maybe even legal norms, pay greater attention to and use as a social resource or social capital kind of objective external public reputation in ways that other cultures don't. Yeah. Now, you know, if that's what we mean by honor shame, and this is, this is the whole point here. Uh, what I, what I want to caution us against doing is to say that's honor mm-hmm. and to ignore all of the other complex honor dynamics and honor strategies that are going on in my life and my context that are really honored to. Yeah. So the fixation on a kind of a public honor or a public face, you know, it's the same thing with face cultures, right? There are face cultures where we're not a face culture. Well, that doesn't work um, because we're doing face work all the time. We just do it differently. So there's a difference between, for example, how uh, public honor functions as social capital, how important it is in society, how useful it is in society, how you can cash in on it in certain ways that doesn't work uh, in other cultures. Um, yeah, and so it, those are legitimate differences that we can talk about. But to say one is an honor or an honor shame culture and another isn't because they don't do it that way, I think, again, leads us down the wrong path where we then will ultimately ignore how what we are doing in this ostensible guilt innocence culture is actually honor and actually shame. And so so I think that's the important thing. This work that you're talking about, trying to figure out how honor dynamics work in various cultures in varied ways. Am I right? I think you call this honor exegesis in in your article. Okay. Okay. Right. That's a, I like that's an elegant term uh, that I would, I would agree with. Let me um, kind of wrap things up with uh, a, a good application question in your article, you speak, you say that discipleship is an honor-laden task. And you said crucial to effective discipleship is the reconstituting of the court of reputation. Mm-hmm. Could you just unpack it just a little bit? Because yeah. it's such a, there's so much good there. And it really brings this home for uh, the church. Right. Yeah, I, I really think that there's there's very few things that are as practical as paying attention to theories of social honor. <laughs> and by that, I mean, um, if you read the New Testament and the, the, the scholar, the writer who has helped me the most in this regard uh, is someone who I know you also know and respect as well. And that's David De Silva, mm. and particularly his work on honor discourse in the New Testament and his commentary on the book of Hebrews, which De Silva claims is an extended version of what you just noted from my chapter. That is, the author of Hebrews is trying in all kinds of um, very, very clear ways to get this group of believers to uh, who have apparently begun to readopt or return to the previous honor codes uh, 
by which they used to live. And he's trying to reframe that. And he's trying to show them that Jesus, Jesus, even though he causes social stigma for them in their context and social conflict with those around them, that Jesus is the truly honorable one. And that ultimate and true honor is with Jesus outside, you know, the city, the way that he ends in, in chapter 13. And that Jesus for you know, the joy of the cross, right? He endured its shame and he's calling the believers uh, in this book to imitate Jesus. So um, this notion of reorienting, reformatting, uh, rewriting the, uh, I mean, all our cultures give us a default honor code. Um, and so what, what the task of the church is in every place is to understand this is the honor code. These are the honor dynamics that are being given to us by our dominant culture. And as believers in Christ, here are the ways that we are um, saying yes to that, because some of those honor codes that are given through natural culture are still going to be acceptable. There's, I, I would be one who would say that, that uh, the image of God, the imago dei, isn't been completely obliterated by the fall, that there are remnants of good out there. And these show up in the honor code sometimes. So some of the things we say, yep, that looks pretty good, actually, because it connects with what we understand about God and about virtue and, and godliness. And then there are some things that we're going to have to go, you know, that's not exactly right. And we're going to have to reshape it. We're going to have to reframe it and reorient it. And then there are some parts of that dominant culturally given honor code that we're going to say, absolutely no. We reject that outright as something that is antagonistic or uh, absolutely against what we understand to be truly honorable and worthy of respect and, and, uh, and goodness. So that's the work, right, to, uh, to understand the, those dynamics. And, um, and I think that that's at the core a huge part of discipleship. Um, Especially, and this is this is really important. I want our listeners to understand one of the um, important things that early on in the missions literature that discussed things like shame and honor and culture um, were really ambivalent or antagonistic towards these issues was because it was thought that that honor and shame were pure purely attention to public opinion. So really, what shame is is it's it's the feeling that you're not measuring up to those outside and that, that the Christian needs to develop a kind of an internal moral compass that is oriented towards God's law, which has nothing to do with what people think, but rather what the objective law of God is or the, the norms and moral standards of God. Um, and I think that, uh, that this conversation allows us to see that, in fact, that's a part of shame and that's certainly a part of honor. But it's not the whole story. And in fact, it's much more complex than that. But it gives us the opportunity to lean into some things that our cultures give us positively, to subvert or reorient it some other things. And then, of course, at times we do have to reject certain things that culture gives us because of our commitment to God and Jesus. So that's at the core of what I think um, intercultural discipleship is all about. Oh, so rich. I have a feeling some of our readers are going to finish this conversation and then immediately push replay and listen to this all again. There's so much good here. So uh, last thing before we go, uh, I've mentioned the works that you've written, uh, books, articles, any other resources that you would suggest people go look at to kind of continue the thinking on this? Sure. I'd, I'd encourage them to read everything by our, uh, our wonderful podcast host, <laughs> who, who, who tends to produce some of the best stuff out there. You mentioned um, our friend, Jason Georges, who has an excellent website, honorshame.com. That's what I tell people. Uh, if they're if they're just one thing that they're going to do, then I would say go to honorshame.com and subscribe to the, it's free. And the resources that come out of there are really wonderful and rich. And then of course, all of the things that are stored on that website are great. Mm. Um, Things, uh, the, the book, The Global Gospel by uh, our friend, um, Werner Mischke, is a really rich kind of, um, journey into how the good news of Jesus really is about honor and shame. 
and I love that book. Um, those are some places that I would recommend that people go to. And if you just go to YouTube, uh, I mean, you got to eat the fish and spit out the bones because there's some junk on YouTube when it comes to this. But just, you know, honor, shame and missions. Yeah. And uh, and you can find some really intriguing stuff. Um, but I would start with those places. Um, that's that's fantastic. And I'm, I will make sure all of this goes in the show notes. Uh, Chris, thank you so much. You have just shared so much good stuff with us and super practical, super helpful to shape our thinking. So I appreciate you joining us. Hey, it's a blessing, a joy, and it is, huh? not to be punny, it's a distinct honor to get to to speak uh, on your podcast and to uh, such an esteemed listenership. I appreciate it. Thank you. For those of you guys listening, uh, go wherever you listen to this podcast, give us five stars, tell other people about it. Keep the conversation going.